Revelation chapter 3 as we look to this morning at the sixth of seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And the church today is the church in Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia uh, comes from the Greek word phileo, which means love, but it's referring to brotherly love. So we know the city, Philadelphia, that is called the city of brotherly love, and that, that is why. Love is, is, is a clear and um, unambiguous command in the scriptures, right? For the people of God to love one another, uh, to love our enemies, uh, to love our neighbor, uh, to love the, the lost world. Love is all throughout the Bible. Uh, the church in Philadelphia was only the second church uh, in the, this list of seven to whom uh, there is, is no criticism given, no, no condemnation here in, in what we read. Uh, these are only, uh, only praise, really, is what we see uh, Jesus saying, or we'll see what Jesus says. And this, this is true of, of this church and the second church, which was the church of Smyrna. Uh, this separates these two church, churches from the, the other five, clearly, right, where there is a clear uh, accusation or criticism or condemnation against these churches for their failures, it separates them. It's notable. It's certainly praiseworthy that these two churches are found faithful. Uh, but the percentage of the faithful churches against the unfaithful churches in Asia Minor should be concerning to us. Only two out of the five have, have, a, have, have no criticisms leveled against them. And if, if, this has any, if these letters in any way represent the type of churches today, and the percentages of faithful versus unfaithful churches today, uh, then we should be quite alarmed at, at that disparity. Not only should we be alarmed, but we should also be diligent uh, that, that our church, that this church, be found faithful at the coming of our Lord. Well, the church of Philadelphia was known. It was known for their obedience, for their faithfulness to Christ, to which... And because of which, Jesus, we read, opened the door, uh, an, an open door here for gospel witness. Uh, the name of the city uh, comes from its builder. Uh, his builder's name was, was Philadelphia, or part of the name was Philadelphia. He's the king of Pergamos, or Pergamum. This is the second city in Lydia. It was known for its commercial and its agri agricultural importance, and namely, as far as, far as the agriculture, uh, grape, the crop of grapes is what they were known for. And so, uh, because of that, the city's patron deity was Dionysus, which is the god of wine. Grapes and wine, right? Uh, this was referred to, this city was referred to the little Athens uh, for its many temples. Here in Philadelphia, there was, the population was, was not all Jewish people. There were Jews, uh, there were Christian Jews, and there, there were heathens who, were, who had been con converted. That means unbelievers who became believers, non-Jews uh, that became uh, believers. Well, Jesus began this letter like the other letters, like all his letters, with a reference to himself. And we see that in verse 7. 
uh, read it again or follow along as I read it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So we see three things about Jesus here in verse 7. The, one is, the first one is that he is holy. The Holy One. To be holy indicates purity. It indicates separate, separateness. It means to be set apart. In the case of, of, of God, it is sep- separated or set apart from creation and from sin. Uh, we too are called to be holy, but here Jesus is called the Holy One. The Old Testament ascribes holiness to God, Yahweh, Uh, But the New Testament also ascribes this holiness to Jesus himself, which indicates for us what? That Jesus is God, that Jesus is deity. So at the opening of this letter, not only is Jesus talking, but Jesus is affirming his own deity, his own godness to the one, to the, the words of the one who is holy. And secondly, the one who is true, the true one. Uh, To be the true one means to be trustworthy. It means to be reliable. It means to be dependent. It means to be genuine, to be faithful. One commentary says that Jesus will never lead his people into sin. Jesus will never lead his people into sin. In the face of all these false gods that would have been in existence at, in Philadelphia, Jesus was the only holy and true one. He's setting himself apart. He is the holy one, the true one. We all trust in someone or something. Everybody does. You don't have to be a Christian here today to have have faith in something. In fact, you all have faith in something. It might be in yourself. It might be in, quote unquote, science. It might be in some other uh, type of of God or belief system. But, But you all are trusting in something. And so what we must ask ourselves is what I'm trusting in and what I'm believing in actually worthy of my trusts? Can it actually hold the weight of my trusts? Can it actually hold up to, to, to everything that, that I needed to hold up to? The Bible actually asserts that Jesus is the only one worthy of our faith in our worship. And here Jesus is clearly saying, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. All other gods are false. All other gods will fail. There is no one else that can hold the weight of your faith. Jesus only. Not only is he holy, not only is he true, but we also see that he is sovereign. He is king. And we see that in the last part of verse seven, where it says, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now this takes us back to chapter one, verse 18, where Jesus says that he has the keys of death and Hades. But it also actually takes us even further back into the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, there's a Jewish leader named Shebna, uh, who was second to the king. And he was a worthless man, and he was a selfish man, and he, he used his position for his own benefit. And so he was replaced. He was replaced by a, another man named Eliakim. Eliakim was, was a worthy man, and he was given the keys of authority. Listen to verse 22 of chapter 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, 
He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. You see the connection here. Eliakim, though imperfect, is a type of Christ here. Eliakim is is being connected, this passage in Isaiah is being connected here with Revelation chapter 3. He's a type of Christ with, with the authority at that time to admit or to refuse people into the kingdom, into the king's presence. That was what Eliakim, one of his responsibilities. So when this is then applied to Jesus in an ultimate way, what we find is that Jesus alone holds the keys. Jesus alone has all authority. Jesus alone is the one who opens and closes doors into the kingdom of God. He is the one who has the right to rule. He decides who comes in and who stays out. Another theologian says that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah with absolute power to control entrance into the heavenly kingdom. So here Jesus is stating the case for who he is and his authority to make these pronouncements and these statements about the churches, that he is the holy one, he's separate, he is the true one, he's trustworthy, and he is the sovereign one, he is the Lord, he is the one who has authority. He determines who comes in and who goes out. This is Jesus. And if this is the Jesus who is speaking, we better listen. And this is the same Jesus that that spoke in all the other letters, and the same Jesus that speaks all throughout the Gospels, it is the word of God. And we've said this before, but the words of God are not only the red words. They're all the words. They're all the words. When Jesus speaks, we must listen. These opening verses, each letter, in each letter, teaches us more about who Jesus is. And the more we learn about Jesus, the more confidence we can have in Jesus. And just as he is true and he is holy and he is sovereign, that's true. And we see more of that evidence in verse 8. Look at it with me. I know your works. A common phrase again to each church, I know. What does that tell us? It tells us that he is sovereign. He tells us that he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He He knows all things. We see it in each of the letters to the churches. Jesus knows he knows their works. Specifically in, uh, in this church, he knows their works. And, and they were good works, the implication here. That they, they were doing good things. Jesus offered, again, no criticism, but only commendation here. Uh, one writer says that the church was right with the Lord and needed encouragement rather than denunciation. So Jesus looks at this church and he doesn't have criticism for them. He rather has encouragement for them. We go on the rest of verse 8. says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So because of their faithfulness, Jesus set or he gave or he, he produced an open door, which no one was able to shut. Uh, the, the open door here is the opportunity for, the gospel, for gospel witness, opportunity for mission, opportunity for ministry, or, or as one says, the, a spiritual usefulness, the, a door open for spiritual usefulness. We see this idea of, of an open door elsewhere by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, 
uh, Colossians chapter 4, and it all has to do with the proclamation of the gospel, ministry, mission. God had a, a ministry for this church to fulfill, so he opened the door for them to fulfill it. In their faithfulness, God gave them opportunity, and God has ministry opportunities for you and for me. It is God, it is Jesus in this sense, who opens the doors for the gospel. And if there's an open door that you have, consider it as from the Lord, because he is the one who opens these doors and they will stay open as long as he determines and they will shut whenever he so desires. But Jesus then identified two difficulties for the church. You see the first one in verse eight. I know that you have little power, now, this church was known um, for their, their weakness, their lack of strength, uh, probably referring to their size. They may have been a meager number uh, uh, as far as their, their size of their church, that they were weak, humanly speaking. They had little influence in the church. And though that's true, though they had little power, the rest of that verse says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Yet they remained faithful. You, you know, you, you don't have to have the, the largest church in the world in order to be faithful, do you? You, you don't have to be the, the, the greatest whatever in order to be faithful. And these, this church was faithful and did not deny the name of Jesus, even as, as we will kind of start to see that there, there may have been or probably was some measure of oppression happening among the Christians. Wherever God calls you into whatever Whatever God calls you to and wherever God calls you to, he will equip you and enable you to be faithful. You can know that. And here, this church was faithful and God gave them opportunities to continue to be faithful, even when they were weak. It was in his power, the power that God supplies, that the church in Philadelphia remained faithful. It was in his power that you and I, it is in his power, that you and I will remain faithful. As we set our hope in him. And the Apostle Paul knew something about this as well. In first, second, uh, Corinthians chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we faced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we were despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So, Difficulty, right? Problems, obstacles, struggles, whatever the reasons. But that was to make us, what? Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will, del he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope so that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What was Paul doing in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of his oppression? What was he doing? He was putting his hope, placing his hope, setting his hope on the Lord. They had little power and yet they remained faithful and verse 9 tells us that the second difficulty facing the church was this idea of oppression. You can read verse 9 with me. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Those of the synagogue of Satan. We see this actually back in chapter 2. 
Chapter 2, verse 9, the same phrase is used when talking to the church in Smyrna. Those of the synagogue of Satan are unbelievers. That They're hostile Jews. They're, they're these who, who claim to be Jews in a spiritual sense, but they were lying. They, they weren't actually Jews. They, they weren't actually uh, believing Jewish things. These, these Christians in the church were experiencing opposition due to these uh, these unbelieving Jews. Uh, possibly they were experiencing exclusion from the synagogue, uh, false accusations being made about them. And nevertheless, they remained faithful. Uh, all because they, they had a faith in the Lord, they were being oppressed, yet they remained faithful. Uh, sometimes we might be surprised at the opposition to Christianity in the world today. Why do people care? Why, why can't it just be agreed to disagree, right? You believe what you want to believe, we'll believe what we want to believe. Why is there oppression against a Christian? The reason is because it's the synagogue of Satan. It's because it's a spiritual battle. Because Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle. The reason there is opposition to Christianity and has been since the beginning of Christianity is because it is a spiritual battle. It is always, it is always theological. It is always about God. It is always about God. That's why the conflict happens. That there may be presenting ideas, but in the end, it is always a theological battle. So be on guard. And like the church here in Philadelphia, keep his word. Even still, Jesus knows all about the opposition against his people and even promised vindication. We see that in the end of verse 9, which is the first of three promises to this faithful church. And we see it with that phrase, I will. You see at the end of verse 9, behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So because they've kept his word, right, that's the, that's the um, condition for the promises. All three of the promises that we're going to look at, because they've kept God's word, because they've been faithful to God, God is going to be faithful to them. And he's going to take care of their enemies. And that is the unbelieving Jews. And now when it says here, they will come and bow before your feet, it's talking about conversion. It's talking about unbelieving Jews coming to faith. The, the vindication is that these people who once oppressed you are actually going to turn and, and come to worship God. They're going to come to see who Jesus actually is. And this was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50, 40, 45 verse 14 says, and they, they shall follow and they shall come over in chains and bow down before you. Chapter 49 verse 31 says, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow to you and lick the dust of your feet. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Chapter 60 verse 13, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. The bowing down is worship. The vindication for the Christian is not that they are just judged, the unbelievers are judged, it's that they actually become Christians, that they come to Christ. 
Now, John MacArthur notes additionally that there is an end times perspective as well here. Now, there is a day coming in the future when the whole nation of Israel will bow down before Christ. Romans chapter 11 and Isaiah, Zechariah chapter 12 point to this. So while there was opposition, it would lead to the vindication in the end. That was the promise that Jesus was giving to this faithful church. The Lord knows those who are his. And those who are his will be saved. And so we share the gospel we share the gospel, we might not get the response that we want. We might get rejection. We might get rejection now and rejection later or rejection now and possibly faith later. But God knows those things, doesn't he? And God will save those who he chooses to save. But that's not the only promise. We see the next in verses 10 and 11, beginning in 10. Because, I have, because you have kept my word, can, there's the condition again, about patient endurance, about being faithful, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So, so for the faithful, right, for those who kept his word, God promised to keep them from the hour of trial. Now, the hour of trial, uh, there's a lot of different ideas or many different ideas that, that could be understood here. Uh, there is, uh, in one way, there's an, an immediate an immediate deliverance uh, from the, the Roman persecution that may be in view here as they threaten the church. There's also an eternal um, view speaking uh, in, in regard to Jesus protecting his people from the eternal judgment of God in eternally. Right? So there's an immediate and there's, there's an eternal. Uh, but having said that, the hour of trial specifically has a, a more of a, a future end times view to it. Meaning it refers to the seven year tribulation period before Jesus returns to establish his earthly kingdom. That the Bible refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah or Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, or the Great Tribulation in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, this is a period of time where Jesus will keep his church from it. He takes them before the tribulation begins. And this would be referred to theologically as a pre-tribulational rapture, or a pre-tribulationalism. Uh, it, it means that the, before the tribulation begins, God will take out of this world his church. Again, John MacArthur writes, because believers in Philadelphia had successfully passed so many tests, Jesus promised to spare them from the ultimate test. The sweeping nature of the promise extends far beyond Philadelphia congregation to encompass all faithful churches throughout history. This verse promises that the church will be delivered from the tribulation, thus supporting a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, there's several reasons for that conclusion. And one of those, well, I'll give you a four today. One is that this is, a, this is not a general trial that Jesus is referring to. It's not a general tribulation. Sometimes we read in the Bible, uh, blessed are you when you fall into trials of various kinds. It's not a general statement. It's a specific trial, the hour of trial. It's, it's limited. Secondly, the trial was a, a future tribulation 
coming upon certain people. And what does it say there? To try those who dwell on the earth. That's a specific group of people. And if we take a a quick flyover in the book of Revelation, we can see that this phrase refers to unbelievers over and over again. Come with me. Chapter 6, verse 10 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? Go to chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice and it flew directly over Head, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpet that the three angels are about to blow. Chapter 11, verse 10. 11, verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been tormented to those who dwell on the earth. Chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that the time is short. Chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Verse 12, same chapter. It exercises all authority. It's talking about the second beast. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship at the, at the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And then finally, verse 14, and by the signs that it and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for. Uh, for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. What is the point? The point is that when Jesus says that this hour of trial is coming upon the world for those who dwell upon the earth, he is talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers are the object of God's wrath, not the church. That's why Paul could say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation has been removed. There is no wrath of God against the Christian. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The third reason is that the, the church is not mentioned in the tribulational description. Chapter 6 through chapter 19 is is the description of the church, excuse me, the description of the tribulation period, and the church is nowhere to be found. How could that judgment be against the church if the church is never described? And fourthly, there are other passages that talk to what we would refer to as the rapture. And in none of those passages is judgment spoken about. All of these are talking about the church being removed not judgment. Therefore, we can conclude that Jesus' promise was to keep the church from, or exempt the church from, deliver the church from, catch away the church from, rapture the church from, the hour of trial, that is, the tribulation. So in light of the coming of this coming judgment, right, in light of that, we see the next thing in verse 11, 
where Jesus affirmed this again to the church. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So he's promising that, that he's coming to deliver. And here he is, he's making it clear he's coming soon. The return of Christ is imminent. Meaning it could happen at, at any moment. And it is what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. It is the blessed hope of the believer. The, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this promise that Jesus is coming, that he's going to keep us from uh, this hour of trial, is both, uh, is both a consolation, like, thank you, <laughs> and it is an incentive, right? It is not just, I get out of, I get out of trouble. It's also an incentive to, to live life now. Some people, uh, one of the criticisms of, of, of people who believe in a rapture is that we just want to get out of here. Like, we don't really care about anybody else. We just want to get out of here. Well, if that's your view of the rapture, if that's how you understand the rapture, then that, that might be a fair criticism. Because that's, that's not the motivation of the rapture, is just get out of here. Can't wait to leave. Of course we can't wait to see Jesus, but every Christian should say that no matter what you believe about the end times. So it's, it's not only a consolation that he's coming soon, he's going to deliver us. It's also an incentive that Jesus is coming. And how will he find us? How will he find you? How will he find me? Think about your last 24 hours. If Jesus were to come, is that how you want to be found? And if it isn't, may the motivation of his soon return incentivize you to no longer live for yourself, but to live for the one who died for you. It should be an incentive to remain faithful and to hold fast. One commentator says, salvation is an initial decision of repentance and faith. We understand that. But it is followed by lifestyle repentance and faith. Obedience, service, and perseverance all of these items are necessary for mature Christianity, or we could say faithfulness. This church was considered faithful, not just because they at one point in time repented and believed, yes and amen, but they continued to grow in their faith. They continued repenting and believing. They continued in obedience and service, and they persevered, patiently enduring, and were found faithful. He says here, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Remain faithful so you, so you don't lose your crown. What is he talking about? He's talking about reward. He's not talking about losing your salvation here. He's talking about losing your reward. It's very different. This passage is in no way calling into question whether or not someone will still be saved if they don't always do the right thing as a Christian. We, we, we all are in that boat. But the one who receives a crown is what? Is, is following the Lord faithfully. And also we know that what are the crowns for? They're not for us. They're for him. So, so, so that, hold on, so that you receive the crowns. Why? Not so you can put them on your wall and show everybody. Or when you have an open house when you graduate, you put them on the table. No, it is to say, Jesus, it's all because of you. I could only have a crown because the Spirit of God has enabled me to be faithful. 
So our faithfulness isn't of anything of ourselves. This is is no boasting in ourselves. The crowns are to cast at the feet of Jesus. The Christian is eternally secure because of Christ. And so the coming of the Lord is not a motivation out of fear that we might not be included. Rather, it's a motivation out of love to remain faithful. Well, the final promise is found in verse 12. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and and he shall never, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God, out of heaven, in my own new name. We actually see here is a twofold promise. Uh, We see it again with that phrase, I will. So again, for the faithful, right? That's the condition. The one who conquers, the one who is victorious, the one who overcomes. And again, 1 John chapter 5, the one who believes by faith. This one is promised what? That I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Now, this may, there may be some symbolism here when he's talking about this idea of pillar. Because in, in, um, in this city, uh, this city was prone to or had the threat of and did experience earthquakes. And so when Jesus says to the church, I will make him a, a pillar in the temple. Uh, the temple might be in contrast to what he said about the synagogue of, of Satan. And now he's saying, in this temple, you'll be a pillar. And the temple is, of course, not a physical temple. Later in, in Revelation, we find there is no temple. That God is the temple. Jesus is the temple. And so we are, are established. We have stability. This, this speaks to a position of security, never to be separated, right? Never shall he go out of it. Which reminds us of, of what Paul says in Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right? In, in the eternal city, there is security. There is uh, protection. And there will never be separation. This is a permanent place with God in heaven. That's the promise. Never going out. There will never be an end of the enjoyment of God's presence. The, the coming city of God, the coming temple of God, which is God himself, is eternal. Sometimes we think about eternality and we're like, man, I just I can't get my head around that. We live in time and space. It's like, man, am I going to like it? That's a long time to not like something, right? Am I going to like it? And I think one of the best ways to think about eternity is just to say this. Think of the best thing that you can imagine. Think about life in the, in the best possible circumstances you could ever imagine. Right? Think about that. And just know that it's going to be a hundred times better than that. Whatever that is, whatever you think that is, it pales in comparison to what heaven promises us. It pales to the, pro- the presence of, of God. It fails to a place where there is no, no death. There's no weeping. There's no, no, no cancer. There's no conflict. There's no divorce. <laughs> There's no fighting, no quarreling. No argument, no illness. Can you imagine that? Well, that day is coming. That day is coming. And the promise to the one who conquers is that they will be there. They'll be in the temple of God. They'll never be separated from it. And secondly, I will write on him the name of my God. Listen to it again. Listen for the, we saw one um, in the first part of 12. My God. 
And now it says, and I will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God, out of heaven, in my own new name. Do you think he's trying to make a point here? <laughs> something about my, something about possession, something about person, something about intimacy, this is, this is God's, and we are God's. Three times, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, that's the new Jerusalem, in my own new name, that's the name of Jesus. It signifies ownership. It signifies intimacy. And what is the promise here but the promise of himself? Given the name of God is given, we get God. <laughs> that's what the end is all about, isn't it? That we get God. Not that we get reward, not that we get peace, not that we just get joy, but we get God. Why? Because you can't have joy. You can't have peace. You can't have all those things without God. So in the end, what we're, what we're looking for, what we're hoping for is actually God. That's what we want. And all the rest comes with it. We don't want just the gifts. We want the giver. And rightly so. David Platt writes, This, we remember, is the great reward of the gospel, God himself. When we risk our lives to run after Christ, we discover that safety, we discover the safety that is found only in his love, in the satisfaction that is found only in his presence. This is the eternal great reward. And we would be foolish to settle for anything else. So we read verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Maybe like the church in Philadelphia, your faith seems small today. Maybe the opposition to be faithful seems big. You might not be able to come, overcome. The invitation is to look to Christ, to hear the words of Jesus to remember his words, to hold fast to what you have received. Hold fast to the gospel. To keep his word, to be faithful, to patiently endure, to persevere, and to know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You have a friend, you have a loved one who doesn't know Jesus yet. If that door opens, you share the gospel and you trust God with the rest. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Like this church who was known for their gospel witness, God, open doors to them. May God open doors to us. We can know that Jesus will return and deliver us. And one day we will enjoy the unending joy of God in the presence of God forever and ever. But these promises are only for the faithful. They're only for the ones who have kept his word. They're only for those who have been born of God. They're only for those who have believed by faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. John chapter 4, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is a way that you too can experience the promises of God. The promises given to the church of Philadelphia and by extension to all Christians. These promises can be yours 
if you would but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means to repent of your sins and to trust Christ alone. Alone. Not Christ in your good works. Not, not Christ in your church attendance. Not Christ in your resume of good, good things that you've done throughout your life. No, Christ alone. Christ and only Christ. The invitation for those who have yet to come to Christ is to come to him today. Now is the time of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Do not wait. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. Come today. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Give us ears to hear. Father, convict us where we have been unfaithful and help us to repent and turn in faith to you. For those who have yet to come to Christ, would they see the Jesus that they need, the Jesus who, who promises to save those who would humbly come to him, the Jesus who, who promises to keep us from the hour of trial, the Jesus who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf that we might one day be brought back to God fully and freely. Even now as we sit here, God, would you hear the prayers from the hearts of each one? And would you find us faithful, not only today, but in the days to come, that when Christ comes, we will not be ashamed. Help us. Help us to trust our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Our God.